Listen as I tell you two short stories, one funny, one serious, one semi-true, the other very much true, and both of them important. There was a large company, and feeling it was time for a shakeup of the company, they hired a new CEO. This new boss was determined that he was going to get rid of all the slackers in the company. So one day he was on the tour of the facilities, and he noticed a guy leaning up against the wall. Now, the room was full of workers, and he wanted to let them know that he meant business. So this new CEO walked up to the guy leaning against the wall and asked, how much money do you make in a week? A little surprised, the young fellow looked at him and replied, I make about $300 a week. Why? The CEO then handed the guy a check for $1,200, and he screamed, Here's four weeks' pay. Now get out and don't come back. Feeling pretty good about himself, the CEO looked around the room and asked, Does anyone want to tell me what that goof-off did around here? From across the room came a voice. He was the pizza delivery guy from Domino's. (laughs) And you just gave him (laughs) $1,200. Not the way you want to deal with your employees. But this one is true. The Duke of Wellington was a British military leader, and he was the one who defeated Napoleon at Waterloo. Perhaps you've heard of that. But he was not an easy person to serve under. He was brilliant, he was demanding, and not once did he ever say anything nice to any of his subordinates. Yet, even the Duke of Wellington realized that his methods left something to be desired. In his old age, A woman came to him one day and asked him if there's anything he would do differently if he had to live his life over again. He thought for a moment and he said, I'd give far more praise. He was a man known to get things done, but he never said anything good to people. You can push people around, you can get things done, but it doesn't make for a very good life. Nor does the way of criticizing everybody, you might find you give $1,200 to the Domino's pizza delivery boy. Today, we're going to look at the final chapter in the book of Romans, and we're going to see how the apostle Paul dealt with people. Now, remember, Romans is, by almost all accounts, the most important thing that's ever been written in human history. Let me say that again. Romans, by many accounts, is the most important document ever written in human history. You might think it's the Declaration of Independence or the Magna Carta or something else. But the influence that this book has had on human history is far greater. It's changed the whole course of human history. We've been talking about it for months now, and finally we're getting to the last chapter, the 16th chapter. And it's kind of a weird one. Paul's done with talking about the theology and all this high-minded stuff that he's been dealing with for chapter after chapter. And now the last chapter of the book is going to be full of names, unpronounceable names, which I'm going to try to pronounce. But what we're going to see today is the heart of the Apostle Paul as he writes his last words to this church in the center of the world, Rome, the only large city in the entire world at that time, 
to a group of people that he had never met. And yet he knows them by reputation, and perhaps some of them had visited him. Remember last week? Paul's plan was to leave where he was, and where he was is he was in the country of Greece. He was going to make what he thought was a quick trip back to Israel, to Jerusalem, and then make his way to Rome, make a quick stop in Rome, and then go to Spain. That was his plan. It didn't work out that way. In fact, it didn't work out that way at all. He did get to Jerusalem, but things went really sour once he got there. They tried to kill him. Then he was put in prison for two years. And then he went on the shipwreck ride in a boat that went up, fell apart at sea. And he gets to Rome and they put him in prison in Rome. And then finally he's released. And we think he eventually gets to Spain and then gets back to Rome and he's executed. But this is a book he writes to the people in Rome, telling them about the good news about Jesus. But now the good news portion is over, and now he is going to say goodbye. And so he's going to say goodbye with the first things that Lorraine told us about. He's going to begin with a commendation. And a commendation is simply... um, words of kindness, just as Lorraine said with the children today, about a woman whose name is Phoebe. Now, this woman is very significant for a number of reasons. Let me read again the the verses. This is verses 1 and 2. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church at Cancrea. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you. For she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Now, why, first of all, would he recommend Phoebe? Well, all commentators, if you looked at any of your Bible commentaries, or if you looked at your study Bibles, you'll see that Phoebe is the one to whom the Apostle Paul gave this letter to carry it to Rome. Little did she probably know she was carrying one of the most valuable pieces of literature that has ever been written in human history. And so Paul says, this woman, Phoebe, is going to be the one carrying my letter from present-day Greece to Rome. She's going to be the one. Now, who would you entrust with this letter? Now, when she comes to you, she comes with my recommendation. Let me tell you who she is. She is one of the leaders in the church. She is one of the finest servants we have in this church in Corinth. More than that, she is um, someone who has used her means because she's probably a woman of some wealth. She has used her money to advance the cause of Jesus Christ. And it's probably the case that the church in Corinth met in her home. Because the early church met in the homes of the wealthier people because their homes were bigger and they could accommodate a group of people in their home. So here is this woman, this woman who's going to carry this letter, who is known as a faithful servant of the church, perhaps holding an official title in the church, 
A woman who is of some substantial financial means, she probably, can, she probably travels with a group of people with her because she's a wealthy woman, and she's the one who's going to carry this letter. So when you receive this letter, the first thing I want you to know is she comes with my highest recommendation. That's the first thing that we know. Now, um, have you ever thought to yourself, if I was in that church, or if I was in any church, what would Paul commend about me? Would he say that I have been a faithful servant of the church? Would he say that I have been generous with the financial means that God has given me to advance the cause of Jesus Christ in this community? Would he say that of me? Would, would someone like Paul entrust me to carry this incredibly important piece of literature to some other place? That's Phoebe. He begins with a commendation. But now in the next section, and I'm just going to read this one, because if you try to follow along, you'll be, you'll be in deep trouble. For the next 15 verses or so, the Apostle Paul is going to give greetings. Verses 3 to 16. Now, as I read this, I want you to perk up your ears, not for the funny names, but for the repeated phrases. Listen for things that are repeated. And there's much more than meets the ear in this section of Scripture. Here's how it goes. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Greet my dear friend Epinatus, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Adronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews, who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Ampelitus, my dear friend in the Lord, and greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachys. Greet Apelles, whose fidelity for Christ has stood the test. Greet those who belong to the house of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet those in the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. Greet Astronachus and Phelion and Hermes and Patrobus and Hermes and other brothers and sisters with them. Greet Philogus, Julia, Nerus, and my sister and his sister and Olympus and all the people who are with them greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send greetings. Wow. Did you pick up some common things? 28, if you wanted to count them. There were 28 names there. And uh, we know hardly anything about any of them. <laughs> And yet the Bible includes all of these names. The first thing you obviously know is that um, the Apostle Paul knew a lot of people. Now remember, this is a, a group of people who live in Rome, and he's never been to Rome. And look at all these names of people that he knows or he knows about them. Priscilla and Quilla, of course, they had met. 
because they had come, they were kicked out of Rome by the emperor Claudius. And interesting, in the Roman historian Suetonius, he was one of the Roman historians of the first century, he talks about how the emperor Claudius kicked out the Jewish people from Rome because of some disagreement about Christus. Most scholars believe that the Jewish people in Rome disagreed about the Christ, Jesus. And the argument, is Jesus the Christ? Yes or no? Yes or no? Yes or no? Some Jews said yes, some Jews said no. And finally, the emperor Claudius said, enough! Get rid of all of them. They kicked them all out. That's how Priscilla and Aquila were kicked out of Rome. They got to Turkey, where they met Paul. And that's where they become acquainted with each other. And by the way, um, it's one of the many historical examples of speaking in the first century about Jesus that's not in the Bible. There are many of these. The, 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 the story of the Bible is very well substantiated in history outside the Bible. For those of you who don't know that, um, it, it's well substantiated. So Priscilla and Aquila were a couple of these people. We do know their names. They became very, very prominent in the early church. But many of these other names, uh, we don't know. But, but some of them were um, extremely important people. What words did you pick up? Did you pick up the, the terms of endearment? Oh, my sister. These who have been very dear to me who I love in the Lord. Did you pick up the terms of endearment? It's just full of them. Did you, hear, did you pick up how many times the word work came up? These are my fellow workers. These are the ones who have worked hard for the Lord. Work comes up a lot. And did you notice anything else in those words? Did you notice how Paul commends people for their courage? These people were imprisoned with me. These people stuck out their necks for Christ. He commends their courage. But this you could never have picked up on. Many of the names in this list are slave names. And interestingly, in this church, you had people who were of the household of the kings and people who were slaves in the same church. The highest class of people, people of incredible financial means, and you had people who were the lowest class you could be, slaves. Many of these are actually slave names. Now, um, it, it's, it's, a, it's quite a list. It's a list that's, that's full of people of, of very, very diverse backgrounds. Um, one of the interesting things that happened, I, I had it happen over and over and over again in Africa when I lived there. And every time I visited Africa, and I've never once ever seen it happen in America. If any of you ever go to Africa and you are in an African Christian church and they know that you're from America, they will always say this line to you when you leave. This happened to me many times. They will say, greet the church in America for us. They will always say it. If you, any of you have been to Africa, and if you've been to an African church, every time, every time they say, oh, our brothers and sisters, are you American Christians? Greet the church in, Africa, in America for us. You know, that's sad. I've never heard any American church say when an African person comes, and we've had many African people in our church in Longmont, say, 
I don't know why I didn't. Be sure you greet the church in Africa for us. Because by the way, there are more African Christians than there are American Christians by far. And the epicenter of Christianity is not America. It's Africa and Asia and South America. It's not America anymore. Greet the church. The Apostle Paul, when he says this with all these names, he's saying, greet the church for us. Warren Wearsby, who wrote a a commentary on this book that some of us have studied, he said this, Paul was a friend maker as well as a soul winner. In my own reading of Christian biography, I have discovered that the servants whom God has used the most were people who could make friends. They multiplied themselves in the lives of their friends and associates in the ministry. Today, we would say they have high EQ. You've heard the word intelligent quotients, IQ, but they say far more significant in a person's ability to succeed in life is their level of EQ, namely their ability or emotional quotient, their ability to get along well with people. Obviously, the Apostle Paul had very high EQ. He had high IQ as well. That's obvious. But because of that, he was able to influence the lives of many, many people. And did you notice the line? Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, I watched you a little bit this morning. I didn't see anybody do that. Did I miss something? Did did any of you do that? Oh, good. Charles did here. Um, At least we have somebody obeying the scriptures in this place here. Um, But over and over again in the Bible, it says, Greet one another with a holy kiss. I didn't see any of you do that. So you like to disobey the Bible. Is that right? And you might say, I didn't see you do it either, Tom. (laughs) I didn't. What does it mean? Well, um, have you seen Eastern cultures where people come and they kind of do the air kiss with each cheek? That's probably what they did in the early church. Do we have to do that? No. However, What is behind that? And it's a command. It's given over and over again in the New Testament. Greet one another with a holy kiss. It doesn't mean we have to kiss each other. And by the way, did you know that that was one of the early criticisms of the Roman government against Christians? In fact, they killed them for this. They said Christians are committing incest. They call each other brother and sister, and they kiss each other. They're committing incest. That was the false accusation against the early church. And they were not committing incest at all. But what does it mean in our context? It means in our context, we, we're glad to be together. We actually love each other. We feel fondly each other. We have affection for each other. We might show that with a hug or a handshake. These days, of course, we keep our distance because of COVID in many ways. But are we glad to see each other? The early church was full of joy when they got to see one another because it was considered a great, great privilege. Are we that way at all? And by the way, people's names are incredibly important. The Bible has put into this chapter 28 names of people we hardly know anything about. Why did God bother to do that? Put these, Aristobulus, who in the world is that? Rufus, oh, Rufus is important, because do you know who Rufus may be? There is another Rufus mentioned in the Gospels. Rufus's dad is Simon of Cyrene, 
who carried the cross for Jesus. So this Rufus could well be a person who grew up to become a leader in the church in Rome whose papa was the man who carried the cross for Jesus. Can you imagine a greater privilege than that? And where are they from? North Africa. They're Africans. Here, that's who probably Rufus is. So we may not know much about these people, but they're very significant. How significant are names? Well, let me tell you this illustration. In Washington, D.C., and I've been there, and I suspect some of you have as well, in a grassy area between the Lincoln Memorial and the Washington Monument stands a low, long, polished stone engraved with names. 50,000 names. Among its many visitors, some gaze at it quietly, some place their fingers upon a particular name, some make rubbings of names with pencil and paper. Parents point out special names to their children. Veterans in wheelchairs bow their heads in thoughts of the people who bore these names. A list of names may not appear very interesting, but to those touched by the Vietnam War, the Vietnam Memorial is more than just a list of names. And if some of you have been there, pretty moving, isn't it? When you go to that place, you just, you just want to cry. All you want to do is you cry as you see this, all these many, many names, these people who, who lost their lives fighting for our nation. You see, names are important, and uh, especially to those who are involved. Well, as you know, the Apostle Paul turns from now from these important people, and I call this next section termites, because the Apostle Paul knows, and he's going to put it in his last words, he's just talked about all these people who were so important in the Church of Rome, but he can't let it go, that there are also dangers that the church is going to have to deal with. And so in the next verses, verses 17 to 20, the Apostle Paul is going to warn the people in the church about termites. This is one of the shortest but most powerful passages about false teachers in the whole Bible. Here's how it goes. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By their smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience. So I rejoice because of you, but I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Did you notice what he did? He first of all says, okay, here's an action you got to take. Open your eyes because there are termites in the building. Um, I had a house in Houston and we had termites. When I tore away the wall, I could not believe what wasn't there. It's like the termites had eaten all the wooden studs. It was unbelievable. But from the inside and the outside of the house, you couldn't see any damage. But here in the middle of the the house, the termites were destroying the entire thing. The Apostle Paul says, churches are like that. 
In fact, the Bible equates a church to a building. It says there are, churches are like buildings, and you've got to be careful because there are termites that will destroy the church. And they're usually insiders. So the first action is be aware that there are such a thing as termites. And then he says, keep away from them. Why? How do you know who they are? Well, one of the main characteristics of termites in the church is that they will cause division. Their main desire is to divide and conquer. Why would you want to do that? Usually because of ego. And did you see what they said here? It's basically their own appetites. And in fact, almost all splits in churches are a product of people's egos. That's that's what causes it. It's very seldom significant theological issues. It's human ego that causes it. Now, how do you pull it off? How, what is the method you use? And by the way, if you look in your Bible, you will find almost always when it speaks about false teachers, their main method is all encompassed in one word. You'll find it over and over again in the Bible. Do you know what that one word is? Flattery. That's the main method used. What is flattery? Flattery is when you tell somebody nice things about themselves, but you don't really, you're not really trying to encourage them. What you're trying to do is manipulate them. Oh, you're the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. Baloney. Or you're the smartest person. Oh, you're so good at this. They use words to build up someone's ego, but it's not about them. It's about using them so when you're flattered, actually, you're being used. And so that is the, the major method. And so Apostle Paul says, watch out for them. Their method will be flattery. But you've got to stick to what the truth of God's word is. And God promises that the God of peace will be with you and Satan will be crushed. Um, you perhaps have heard of the Aesop's fable about the wolf. There was a wolf who found great difficulty in getting at the sheep owing to the vigilance of the shepherd and the sheepdogs. But one day, it found the skin of a sheep that had been flayed and thrown aside. So it put on over its own pelt and strolled along among the sheep. The lamb that belonged to the sheep, whose skin the wolf was wearing, began to follow the, weaf, the wolf in the sheep's clothing. So, leading the lamb a little apart, he soon made a meal of her. And for some time, he succeeded in deceiving the sheep and enjoying hearty meals. And the moral of the story, appearances can be deceptive. Watch out for false teachers. What does a false teacher look like today? A false teacher looks like someone who would say, this is how you're saved. You take God's grace and mix it with your good works, and you will be saved. That's called heresy. Or someone will say this. This is how you live the Christian life. You, you trust God, and, and, and you follow the law of God, and if you follow the law well enough, you will grow in your Christian life. No, not true. Or someone will say, you know, we are saved by grace through faith alone. God's grace means that anything we do, it's covered by the unconditional love of God. So let's go out and do whatever we please. No, that's not true. 
You see, there are all kinds of heresies in our world today. There's all kinds of false teaching that we fall for. How do you identify somebody who's a false teacher? Besides the fact that they use flattery, which usually sucks people into their lair, how do you identify them? There's several tests. The first test is what I would call fruit inspection. This comes from Jesus. Jesus says, you will know the false teachers by their fruit. Those who cause divisions in the church, that's called rotten fruit. You'll know them by their fruit. That's the fruit test. Then there's the scripture test. If what a person teaches is not consistent with the whole counsel of God's word, that is a false teacher. That's the scripture test. There's the motivation test. Did you see it in what Paul said? They are not serving Christ. They're serving their own appetites. That's the motivation test. When in fact, someone divides a body of Christ because they're basically serving their own ego or their own appetites, that's one of the other tests. Or the methods test. What are the methods they're using to manipulate people? Are they using flattery? Someone wrote this, don't be dazzled by rhetoric. Be sensitive to such manipulative tactics as moving the goalposts or emotional appeals or ego pulls or flattery or other such things. Be careful of that. That's the methods test. And of course, in the Old Testament, you had the accuracy test. Anyone who claims to speak for God, if they're not 100% accurate, it is not from God because God cannot lie. Um, Someone wrote this. Time magazine does not run articles on orthodox theologians. So if you find the name of somebody in Time magazine, they're probably not orthodox. Only what is new and different is newsworthy. Thus, people can drift into false teaching out of a concern to stand out from others around them. And once a teacher has gone public with a new view, it is humiliating to back down in the face of opposition. One gets a vested interest in the view. I grew up in the 1960s. That's when I was in high school. And the line everyone said in the 1960s was this, don't trust anyone over 30. It was 30. Don't trust anyone over 30 years of age. That's what we all said back in the 60s. That's just brilliant, brilliantly stupid. But I would say to you theologically, don't trust anyone less than 300. Theologically, don't trust anyone less than 300 years old. Why? Because there's nothing new under the sun. If someone comes up with some brand new view from God, be careful. Don't trust anyone under 300. That is wise. Don't trust anyone over 30 is incredibly stupid. But we said that. Well, Paul ends the book now with highlighting his teammates. This is verses 21 through 23. These, he talked about the people, the 28 names of people in Rome. Now, these are the people who are with him, his teammates. Timothy, my co-worker sends his greetings, as do Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my fellow Jews. I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. 
Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, sends you his greetings. Erastus, who is the city's director of public works, and our brother Quartus send you their greetings. Well, there's his ministry team. Timothy is his associate, um, and Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater are some of his fellow Jews. Tertius, he's the scribe. He's the one who wrote this letter. Paul dictated it to him. Gaius, he's the financial man. He's the one with the money. And Quartus is probably, and Erastus are, 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 are public administrators. So that's his ministry team. It included Paul the apostle, Timothy the pastor in training. Then there were um, uh, the, the secretary, that was Tertius, Gaius the host or the patron, Erastus the administrator, and Quartus, I guess with a name like that, he's your proverbial fourth wheel. Tertius would be three and Quartus would be the fourth wheel, whatever that may be. But Paul had a team that was with him. And by the way, God hardly ever does ministry by lone rangers. It's always teams of people. It's a a team effort. Great. Um, Never do you find one player on on a professional sports team without any subordinate help that can win. And then he ends with a benediction. Here are the last words of the book of Romans. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. So, where do we take from this passage of Scripture? Let me suggest several things as we conclude. Number one, who are the people that you would trust with your life? Who are the trusty people? Remember our first person we encountered? Phoebe. She is a woman, I guess if you had to put a word with Phoebe, the word would be trust. I can trust this woman. Who are the people that you trust, Who's, who have shown over and over again that they've got your back. I would suggest two practical things we do with people like this is, number one, thank God for them. And number two, why not thank them themselves? Have you ever gone to somebody that you know, has had your back and who you really trust and you said, thank God for you because you've had my back. I've got people like that in my lives, my life. People who have had my back, who I commend, people I trust. That's the first one. Secondly, do we take pains to learn people's names? One's name is very important. Incredible. Remember the words of Jesus? Jesus says, I know my sheep by name. And because I know them by name, they know my voice. And they follow me. That's what Jesus said. And remember, what the ones, it, 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 this is John writing about heaven. When the eternal books were open, earthly names will be read. Our names are in a book in heaven. 
Our names are very, very important. So let's work on names because everyone's name is very significant. Thirdly, how proactively do we cultivate friendships with very different kinds of people? Remember, Paul's friends are Jews and Gentiles, women and men, slaves and free people, poor people, rich people, ordinary people, outstanding people, singles and couples, famous people and unknown people. Paul had friends among all these groups of people. He was a friend maker as well as a gospel proclaimer. And the two went together extremely well. Do we spend our time In fact, devote a lot of our time to making friends. It's one of the most important things we can do as Christians. Next question. Would, if the truth was known, would someone be able to say this about us? Oh, they worked hard for the Lord. Did you notice how many people Paul said that? They worked hard for the Lord. Could they say that about us? And do we have affection and express appreciation for our brothers and sisters in Christ? Do we do that? Greet one another with a holy kiss. And last but not least, do we exemplify courage for Christ? Paul highlights several people who stood with him when things turned bad. When he was imprisoned, they were in prison with him. When he was in deep trouble, instead of backing away and running, they went forward and took part of the pain with him. Do we exemplify lives of courage for Christ? For all of those, that's how Paul ends his letter. With people who we commend, people who were precious to him, people who worked hard for the Lord, people who were courageous for Christ, people whose names we have long since forgotten, but God has not, people who faithfully followed Jesus.